stubborn girls and mean stories the central fact of my life is that i was born in 1949 in greenville south carolina the bastard daughter of a white woman from a desperately poor family a girl who had left the 7th grade before worked as a waitress and was just a month past 15 when she birthed me the fact that the inescapable impact of being born in a condition of poverty that this society finds shameful contemptible and somehow oddly deserved has had dominion over me to such an extent that i have spent my life trying to overcome or deny my family lives uh my family's lives were not on television not in books not even comic books there was a myth of the poor in this country but it did not include us no matter how i tried to squeeze us in there was this concept of the good poor and that fantasy had little to do with the everyday lives my family had survived the good poor were hard working ragged but clean and intrinsically honorable we were the bad poor we were men who drank and couldn't keep a job women invariably pregnant before marriage who quickly became worn and fat and old from working too many hours and bearing too many children and children with runny noses watery eyes and the wrong attitudes my cousins quit school stole cars used drugs and took dead end jobs pumping gas or waiting tables i worked after school in a job provided by lyndon johnson's war on poverty stole books i could not afford we were not noble not grateful not even hopeful we knew ourselves despised what was there to work for to save money for to fight for or struggle against we had generations before us before us to teach us that nothing ever changed and that those who did try to escape failed everything i write comes out of that very ordinary american history there is no story in which my family is not background even as i have moved far away from both greenville south carolina and the poverty to which i was born i remain my mother's bastard girl a woman who treasures her handmade family my own adopted bastard child and the lover partner who has nurtured and provoked me for more than 15 years we become what we did not intend and still the one thing i know for sure is that only my sense of humor will sustain me stories i began as a girl seem different to me when i read them now it is almost as if i did not write them as if that writer were another person which of course she is 20 and 25 years ago when i first began to publish stories i was a different person not just younger but more girlish than it is easy for me to admit today i grew up writing these stories i made peace with my family i forgave myself and some of the people i'd held in such contempt most of all those i loved the forgiveness took place in large part through the writing of these stories in a process of making peace with the violence of my childhood in owning up to it and finding a way to talk about it that did not make me more ashamed of myself um or those i loved 
When I was considering the question of the new edition of the stories, I worried that the conversation in which they had originated was specific to its time. There is a way in which that is exactly so, though much less so and in different ways than I had imagined. I thought they would have grown boring to me, but they have not. Rereading them, I find myself once more sitting forward and grinding my teeth, or putting the book down and pacing a bit, or sometimes just laughing out loud. Yes, it is true that I wrote many of these stories out of my own need, satisfying myself rather than some editor or university professor. I did not at first expect to publish anywhere except in the small literary magazines where I worked as a volunteer editor, which is not a bad way to begin. Before I published any of my own stories, I read a great many stories by people just as passionate about writing as I was. And I learned something from everyone I read. Sometimes most important, what I should not try to write. I began in the tradition of Muriel Rukeyser, aching to break the world open with what I had to say on the page. There were specific feelings I wanted the stories to create, realizations I wanted people to experience. Sometimes it was grief I wanted to provoke, sometimes anger, almost always a spur to action, to change. I wanted the world to be different in my lifetime. And I truly believed that stories were one way to help that happen. I did not begin with craft. I began with strong feelings and worked towards craft. I wanted to be good and I wanted to be effective. And these are not always the same thing. Sometimes I was trying to write a poem, but the thing would not pare down enough to anything less than a narrative. Sometimes I was so angry, I wrote to stop my own rage. Mostly I was angry and drunk on words the sound of words more than the way they looked on the page. It is quite literally that the case that I wrote out loud, reading the stories out loud over and over until they were closer to what I wanted. If I die tomorrow, I want to have gotten this down. This is how many of these stories started. Once in a while, I had read someone else's story and put it down in rage beginning my own to refuse the one that had so confounded me. Going back into these stories, I remembered those moments even when I no longer remember the actual stories I was refuting. Taylor Caldwell stories, I called them in an early journal. Stories in which poor southern characters were framed as if they were brain damaged or morally insufficient or just damn stupid. We're not stupid. We do pretty well with what we have. I'd set out to put that on the page, but often I would go south. By that I mean, I would not wind up where I intended. I started Meanest Woman Ever Left Tennessee, the story, to work out in my own mind what it must have been like to have been my grandmother and her mother, my great-grandma, about whom I knew almost nothing, except that her children hated her and that she had lived a long time. How'd that work? I wondered and made up a fictional Mattie Lee, a pretend Shirley, 
I gave the children names that actually figured in my grandmother's conversations, names of cousins, second cousins and lost uncles. I worked it out as if it were a movie or the kind of story um, people in my family simply would not tell. Contrary to the myth of southern families passing stories along on the porch, people in my family kept secrets and only hinted at what might have happened. Some days, I think the way to make a storyteller is to refuse to tell her what happened, as my mama and aunts did with me. I had to make up my great grandmother and I did it in a story that was originally to be about her daughter. A story I started when I was still in college and my mother told me my grandmother had died. But 3 months after the funeral was passed and long past any hope I might have of going to Greenville attending the funeral um or learning anything about how she had died in a ditch my uncle Jack told me a decade later. She had a stroke halfway between our house and your uncle Bo's. She just lay down and died. Oh, I stood there. Oh, uh I was living in Tallahassee then in a feminist collective household and fiercely determined to learn more about my grandmother, my aunts, even my legendary great-grandma Shirley. But my uncle's brutal comment was all that I gathered in that visit, and almost as soon as I asked about it, <clears throat> one of my aunts denied that was how it happened. She didn't lie down there. She died in the hospital 2 whole days later. She just fell in that ditch and lay there a while before we went out and found her. Maybe that was the story I should have written, but it wasn't. By the time I got back to my big complicated household, I was working on the story of what Grandma Mattie Lee might have been like as a girl. What if? And I was in it, watching Shirley beat on the steps with that broom handle. Would I have made Mattie Lee so heroic? if my own mother had not hidden her death from me if my own uncle had not spoken so brutally maybe still what i wrote fell right on the page and from this distance that seems the primary fact i did a lot of things because it felt right on the page or sounded right when i read it aloud in an empty room i did not finish the story in tallahassee i did not finish that story till brooklyn fully 15 years after my grandmother's death Even then I think I finished it because I fell in love with that teenage girl her mouth full of white and her eyes full of fire It worked well enough that it was another of the stories my mama would never talk to me about Now that's mean my mama said about one of the stories I sent her She smiled and gave a little shudder when she said it That is what what I intended I told her I want it mean I did not say I also wanted the story to be about love and compassion. For that sometimes I had to dig deeper into the muscle of character. Still I think you can tell that I loved my impossible grandmother with my whole heart. Her black brows, her white face, her bulldog glare and frank inclination to tell me things that my mother never intended for me to learn. I knew she worked her children the way her mother had worked her. putting them out to pick strawberries for neighboring farmers and pocketing the money to buy snuff. I knew she was quick to slap and full of desperation, but I knew also that in the context of how she had been raised and what she had survived, 
She was almost gentle, almost sweet-tempered, but not quite. I had sweet-tempered cousins and I saw them get ground down. I had gentle aunts and it seemed they almost disappeared out of their own lives. Is it any wonder that when I set out to write stories, I made up women like my grandmother or like my great-grandmother? Troublesome, angry, complicated women with secretive, unpredictable natures. That is who you will find in my stories. And little girls who were not me. What are these stories about? Shame and outrage, pride and stubbornness, and the vital necessity of a sense of humor. I wrote to release indignation and refuse humiliation, to admit fault and to glorify the people I loved who were never celebrated. I wrote to celebrate. I wrote to take a little revenge and sometimes to make clear that revenge was not what I was doing. Always, always, I tried not to use that flat metallic language of politics and preaching. But sometimes I knew no other way to frame what I had to say. I wrote to give back to others who had given to me, sometimes reflexively. I would write particular stories in response to those I read. I began to write about incest only after reading Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye. The book felt like a slap on the back from my mother's hand, as if a trusted, powerful voice were telling me, you know something about incest, something you fear, but had best start figuring it out. I began to figure things out in story. I wrote Mama to talk about how deeply intertwined love and resentment can be in a family in which violence and sexual abuse are the norm. River of Names was an attempt to stop being ashamed of running away from the lives my cousins were living. And bluntly, it was a slap in the face of all the women I knew who seemed unable to imagine lives different from their own. Some stories I wrote in apology, but I cannot say the writing was ever simple or straightforward. Even as I tried to apologize on the page, I was aiming at an audience who I imagined recoiling at the facts and people I portrayed. I published Don't Tell Me You Don't Know before I told my mother I would be unable to have children, though that is the subject of the story. <clears throat> Only much later did I begin to think about what it is, what it would have felt like for her to read that story my heartbroken mother who wanted nothing so much as the grandchildren I could not give her. Some stories were about trying to figure things out to understand what had happened and why. Mama, gospel song, lupus, a lesbian appetite, and I'm working on my charm. All those stories begin with a mystery. Sometimes the mystery was simply how to tell the story at all. How do you write about lust with a sense of humor, shame, or lesbian desire? Some of these stories are easily ascribed to rage. Monkey bites, river of names, her thighs, muscles of the mind, demon lover, steal away, 
and violence against women begins at home. All of them began with me walking back and forth in front of my desk in the dark of night. Sometimes it was a person that had filled me with outrage, but sometimes it was someone else's story. I had to figure it out. I did it on the page. Reading these stories again, I go back to the time in which they were written. The early women's movement was a genuinely remarkable moment in history. Perhaps um, most of all because we were all so sure that we were going to change the world. Talking to 20-year-olds these days, I find it difficult to get them to understand what it was like being part of the early liberation movements that so impacted this country in the 60s and 70s. We were fighting for our lives. I say and I mean it literally. The life I was meant to have is what I was fighting for. I did not want to be a waitress my whole life, to be poor or to come to accept being treated with contempt. I did not want to be ashamed of my family, my sexuality or myself. I did not want to despair or commit suicide out of hopelessness. One generation back, I can name people who did just that, who despaired and died. They were no fiction. When I talk to young people, I find myself telling very specific stories. I tell them about my first decent job, the one with the Social Security Administration where I was put on probation and almost fired for wearing pantsuits to the office. Tasteful, respectable outfits with high-buttoned white blouses paired with low heels and nylons, even in the Tallahassee humidity. A shiny-haired 18-year-old boy at Stanford laughs and says, What were they thinking? What indeed? I tell how, when at 23, With my respectable government job, I tried to get a credit card and I was asked to have my stepfather co-sign the application. We were never quite adults, I explain. We women. You have no idea how different the world was when we set out to change it. That was the world in which I began to write these stories. That was the context, reading them over. I fall back in time and remember the writing of them. I remember working long hours, hurrying home and napping briefly in order to have the ability to spend more long hours at my desk in the night. I never went after a grant, never believed I could get one. I took it as a given that a woman like me would have to do it the hard way. Steal time from my day job, work without an editor or ready reader and never have a confidence that what I was writing would be anything anyone would want to read. But I never imagined not writing. What I could not imagine was publishing. I read my stories often, at benefits and open readings, and always afterwards people would come up to me and ask me, didn't I have a book yet? I was startled every time. No, I had to say. I've been writing stories, not thinking about a book. It is possible this collection would never have come about if I had not lost my temper. I read a review of a book I loved, My Mama's Dead Squirrel by Mab Segrist, a witty, revealing collection about humor, full of stories about her family. The review was not critical, it was nasty. 
It made easy jokes about southerners and their funny families. In a rage, I called that woman who had asked me if I had a book. I said, "I've got a book. I've got a book that will make the reviewers' teeth hurt." It took me more than 2 years to finish the stories and let this book go. By then I had moved from New York to San Francisco and was living month to month on what I could put together teaching and writing freelance for whoever would hire me. My temper had run its course and my first impulse was long past. When I was correcting the galleys, I kept thinking back to that review, anticipating the criticism that would surely be directed at my stubborn girls and mean stories, regretting my tem- temper but not the book itself. I gave the manuscript to a lover I had begun to take very seriously. All these years later she's still there, the mother of my son and the woman with whom I plan to share the rest of my life. Her review was the first. It's not bad, she said. You are the real thing. After that, I decided to take everyone else's opinion in the stride. Why write stories? Well, to join the conversation. Literature is a conversation, a lively enthralling exchange that constantly challenges and widens our own imagination. A skinny guy from the Bronx told things I'd never ima- imagined about growing up a Puerto Rican who has never seen the islands. A tall woman from the Midwest talked about apple farms and hiding up the half-ripe fruit so as not to have to think about dead and lost children. God, yes, I murmured. Yes, in return I tried to reimagine the world as my great grandmother saw it, feeling in my low back the generational impact of giving birth to 11 children in 15 years. A little later I retold the crime I committed against a woman who loved me with her whole heart, but who for all that love never knew who I really was. Did she really say those things? No. but she might have does it feel like that absolutely i try for truth and language sometimes if the language works i let the details slide but i'm a writer and i know my own weaknesses in the end the stories have to have their own truth and craft now for a word on trash i originally claimed the label trash in self defense the phrase had been applied to me and to my family in crude and hateful ways I took it on deliberately as I had taken on dyke. Though I have to acknowledge that what I heard as a child was more often the phrase white trash. As an adult, I saw all too clearly the look that would cross the face of any black woman in the room when the particular term was spoken. It was like a splash of cold water. And I saw the other side of the hatefulness in the words. It took me right back to being a girl and hearing uncles I so admired spew racist bile and callous homophobic insults. Some phrases cannot be reclaimed. I gave the one up uh, and took up the simpler honorific trash instead of white trash. By my 20s, that was what I heard most often anyway. Even rednecks get sensitized to insults, abandon some and cultivate others. I have not been called white trash in two decades, but only a couple years ago, I heard myself referred to as that trash in a motel corridor 
in the Central Valley in California. In 1988, I titled this short story collection Trash to confront the term and to claim it's honorific. In 2002, Trash still suits me, even though I live over here in California, among people who are almost post-conscious. In Sonoma County, it makes more sense to call myself a Zen redneck or just a dyke mama. What it comes down to is that I use trash to raise the issue of who the term glorifies as well as who it disdains. There are not simple or direct answers on any of these questions and it is far harder to be sure your audience understands the textured lay of what you are doing especially if you are in Northern California rather than Louisiana and in 2002 rather than 1988. And of course, these days I feel like there is a nation of us, displaced Southerners and children of the working class. We listen to Steve Earle, Mary J. Blige and Katie Lang. We devour paperback novels and tell evil mean stories, value stubbornness above patience and a sense of humor more than a college education. We claim our heritage with the full appreciation of how often it has been disdained. And let me promise you, you do not want to make us angry. Dorothy Allison, Guerneville, California, 2002. The Introduction to Trash. <laughs>